0: an Executive Editor and the Empirical Scholarship Editor of the Yale Journal on Regulation, John Bowers, the Empirical Scholarship Editor of the Yale Law Journal, and Arisa Herman, the Senior Articles Editor of the Cornell Law Review. We'll be discussing a recent open letter among law reviews, the Joint Law Review Statement on Data and Code Transparency, and its role in the future of empirical legal scholarship. I'll add a link to the open letter in the show notes for the episode. Andrew, John, Arisa, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having us. Yes,
0: thank you. Thanks for having us. Before we get to a discussion of this open letter that your law reviews and other law reviews have adopted, I'd like to talk a little bit about empirical legal scholarship. Legal scholarship in a traditional law review type outlet can take a lot of different methodological approaches from purely normative or doctrinal to some pretty sophisticated quantitative studies to qualitative empirical studies as well. So I want to level set in terms of what do we mean by empirical legal scholarship? How is it distinguished from other forms of legal scholarship? How has empirical legal scholarship typically been published? Is it usually in student-edited law reviews or peer-reviewed journals? And if it's been published in student-edited law reviews, how have law reviews traditionally reviewed, selected, and edited that empirical scholarship?
2: This is Andrew Granato from JREG. To start off, there's a bit of a sliding scale of what empirical scholarship is. And I think for the purposes of our joint statement, I think we're mainly talking about papers that are using some sort of significant data set, whether that's one that an author manually put together or hand coded, or using some sort of other major data set like the US Census or the Survey of Consumer Finances or something like that and then perhaps also using code to analyze that data set in whatever way that the paper takes. So that could be doing something as simple as performing summary stats on a data set, or it could be running regressions, or just kind of any further quantitative analysis. And the reason why we're focusing on that is that I think it's been the case that in a lot of these sorts of papers, there's this whole other kind of part of analysis that is being done in the paper, which is this methodological portion, this data collecting portion, that is not present to the reader and so cannot be evaluated by the reader of the paper. And so the goal of this project is essentially to take this facet of scholarship that previously has just been obscured, and then make sure that it is available to readers to analyze. Hi, this is John. To answer
3: the part of your question about how empirical scholarship has traditionally been reviewed, selected, and edited by student-edited law reviews, I think that there's a fair bit of range in terms of how journals do that. I can speak a little bit to what we do at OILJ. So we have an empirical scholarship editor, namely myself. (laughs) I think that position is getting more common across law reviews. There's, I think, this growing sense that it's really helpful to have somebody with some specialization in the empirical domain who's able to comfortably review statistics, review data sets that authors have collected or manipulated in some way to make them useful for analysis. I think having somebody like that on the staff of a student-run law review is very helpful. Another thing that we consistently rely upon is outside consults asking professors, asking empiricists, asking people who, say, have advanced degrees in a given subject or have done a particular kind of empirical scholarship in the past to give their input and to help us come to a clearer sense of whether a piece of scholarship is novel, whether it's sufficiently empirically robust. And one thing that we think that this initiative is going to do is to really ensure broader transparency and broader ability to vet empirical work and to build on empirical work because when data sets are available when replication is closer within reach readers are both going to be more confident about the empirical work that they're reading and more able to take that empirical work and use it to do another really cool thing so we think that there's both a really useful transparency and credibility function to the initiative and also a generative function to the initiative. We think it's going to enable scholarship that might not otherwise happen.
0: I'm talking to Andrew and John, who are both the empirical scholarship editors of their journals. I'd like to hear a little bit about maybe where empirical legal scholarship fits into a general readership law review. And Arisa, as the senior articles editor of the Cornell Law Review, you have that 20,000-foot view of the article selection process. Could you talk a little bit about how Cornell Law Review or some of your peers at other schools are thinking about publishing empirical legal scholarship. Of course, it's competing with other methodologies in legal scholarship, but what's the general approach that a law review is taking when it receives an empirical submission?
1: So first of all, I think it's changing really quickly. We're seeing a lot more empirical scholarship than we've seen. And in talking with my predecessors who were senior articles editors at the Cornell Law Review in previous years, they definitely saw less empirical scholarship than I've seen, and it's getting increasing numbers every single year. And we're also seeing a lot more interest in empirical scholarship, both in terms of the number of submissions, but also in feedback from our readership. And so I think we definitely see empirical legal scholarship as a really important and really growing field. And one that overlaps with other categories in terms of it's not necessarily you see empirical scholarship as a part of an article or in supporting an argument even if the article itself is not built overall as an empirical article i think we're trying to figure out how to best incorporate understanding of empirical legal scholarship into our review process an articles editor reads every single article that we get submitted to us the thousands we get submitted to us and what we're realizing is that We don't necessarily have the in-house capability always to make sure that we best understand the actual data, the actual robustness of the study, everything else. So we have a peer review process that we can refer things out to. We have been getting advice from our advisors. We've talked about setting up a position like one that John or Andrew have. But I think it's an ongoing conversation in terms of how do we create balance in the volume as a whole How do we understand empirical legal scholarship, not just as this subfield, but as something that's growing more and more, even when it's not necessarily billed as an empirical article?
0: So this sounds like a challenge that, and an opportunity perhaps, that law reviews around the country are starting to see in increasing numbers, this increase in empirical legal scholarship submissions and maybe demand from readers for empirical legal scholarship. I'd like to talk a little bit about where this initiative comes into to place. Could you maybe talk a little bit about what the origins of this initiative were? How did it develop? And what problems is it geared toward addressing? What does the initiative say? What does this joint letter between a number of law reviews say? And what's it trying to do to advance the, the availability and the quality of empirical legal scholarship across the board?
2: This initiative, I think, got started because, so I'm a dual degree student. I'm also a doctoral candidate in financial economics and In economics, this has been an issue that's been boiling over for quite some time, as it has been in the rest of the social sciences and the medical sciences and essentially all other fields in which data plays an important role. I believe recently there was one paper, it's now fully published in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology, Gavalka et al., that is titled, Many Researchers Were Not Compliant with Their Published Data Sharing Statement, where the authors... Go through a list of journals where the disclosure says data is available upon request. And over 90% of the times where they then go on to request that data, it is then not made available to them. So this has been a problem across fields where data and code is not accessible. And there's been a lot of high profile retractions of papers over the years that I think demonstrated quite clearly that whether it's the case that a paper is doing something like p hacking, or whether there are objective errors in the code, it's just imperative that other scholars and readers be able to, at least in theory, see how sausage is getting made in order for these papers to have more credibility. And so that was something that was very much on my mind. And I also talked with a couple of other professors, including Adriana Robertson, who's now at the University of Chicago, about instituting this sort of requirement for JREG And at that point, I also began talking to John, who's administering this basically similar budding policy at Wild J., And we decided, since we both felt quite strongly about this issue, that we should try to take it wide and that we should try to build on. There's a couple of other open letters by law journals in the past. For example, there was one, I believe, in 2004 about article length and about essentially stating a preference for articles that had below certain word counts that's been quite successful. And so that was when we started emailing other journals and starting these discussions that turned into this open letter.
3: This is John. I'll just add on to what Anderson, understand, which I think is a great overview of how this came to be with the observation that when we started doing outreach to other law journals, law reviews, we got this sort of immediate wave of interest and excitement and shared sentiment that I think really was a big part of what encouraged us to take this as wide as we've taken it. And we're still getting continual outreach from law reviews who are interested in being added to the letter. So it does feel like we hit upon something here that a lot of folks working in this space do care about and see as an issue. So that's just been really fantastic to see.
2: How many law reviews have signed on at this point? When the letter went wide, we had 11 journals signed on, and right now we are at 17. And if you are a member of a law journal listening to this, we're more than happy to talk about this with any law journal that is interested, and we'd love to have other journals sign on.
0: For journals that do sign on, what might the terms of the letter mean for their article selection, their editing process, their internal procedures? What does it actually do in terms of a policy matter? And for authors, what might be changing? What might these policies mean for authors who are currently working on papers or will be submitting papers?
2: What the joint statement commits the signatories to, so I'll quote from the statement here, Where possible, authors of articles that include empirical analysis shall disclose the data and or code used in their articles prior to acceptance for publication. If and when a law review publishes an article that includes empirical analysis, it shall make publicly available that article's underlying data and or code. And then we also note that implementation of this policy is going to be left to the discretion of each individual law review. So what that will often mean in practice is that There are some cases in which maximum transparency is not feasible. And the main two examples that we had in mind were when a paper uses proprietary data. So when it's using data, for example, from a company, and so the company obviously does not want this data to just be published wide on the internet. And there's also cases involving sensitive and personally identifiable information. For example, if somebody does a medical survey where they're doing interviews with people, and then they code up those interviews and create quantitative metrics based on them. There's certainly legitimate reasons for the people involved in those interviews to not want the transcripts of those interviews published on the internet, even if, for example, their names could be redacted, because it might be personally identifying anyway. And so we're invoking federalism here, and we're trying to Be flexible about giving each signatory the ability to implement this in the way that makes the most sense for them and makes the most sense for the articles that they're taking on in any given cycle. But we do want to set this strong presumption that if a paper is using data and or code, the default setting should be that there is full disclosure of all such data and code unless there is a compelling reason to not do so.
1: And I'll add to that, I think while obviously we were really on board with the importance of data transparency, and, you know, as soon as Andrew reached out about the statement, we were really excited, the individual flexibility is something that was really important to us. For instance, the Cornell Law Review, like some of our peer journals, is a blind review process. So we ask that all articles that are submitted to us to be blinded prior to submission. And if they're not, we will blind them ourselves before they can move on in our review process. And so for us having the flexibility to make sure that we could ensure that this mandate would align with our principles of blind review and that in having data sets submitted to us, that we could continue to align that with blind review and make sure that we weren't only burdening authors, that we weren't only burdening articles, editors, was something that we really needed the flexibility to continue to figure out on our own. And the way that this mandate might look at Cornell is not necessarily the same way that it will look at other journals. But as long as we are still standing for the same principle that we're publishing articles with their data sets where feasible, that we are standing for data transparency, that's what's important.
0: How would you define success for this joint statement? And if the joint statement is successful, what Does it look like five years from now in terms of law reviews themselves, in terms of the state of empirical legal scholarship? You'll graduate and move on to wonderful careers, and you can look back at this initiative that you got off the ground. What do you hope to see in five years as the fruits of this initiative? This is John. I think in
3: broad strokes, the single biggest thing we're looking for is for law journals and law reviews to produce, formed, well-thought-through data policies and to consistently enforce them moving forward. I think that's something that's not going to snap into full focus for at least a couple of years, given the sort of rate of flow for empirical pieces can vary from year to year across different journals. And because, again, there might be exceptions in play for some of the pieces that we see in the near term. Broadly speaking, I think I'll feel like this initiative will have been a success if, again, five years from now, I'm Looking at across all of the empirical scholarship that I've read, and I can consistently click through to the article and then find a link to the Dataverse site and go and download everything and run my own little experiments, verify results, and so forth. So, yeah, I think the proof is really going to be in the pudding. Fundamentally, it's just going to be a matter of, I think, keeping the faith <laughs> and remaining strong in the messaging around this. Andrew and I have discussed this in the past. This initiative from our perspective, isn't over. We still have journals joining the initiative. There are still things that we can do, including wonderful podcasts like this one, to get the message out there and to really make this a live issue. And I know that there are other folks doing meta-scholarship on how legal empirical scholarship you know, is shaping up, the kind of things that are published, data availability for the things that are published. And so I think that work's also going to be really important in terms of tracking and indexing
0: how the space develops after this initiative's kind of been put into place. What advice, and this is maybe a question for all of you, and I suspect you might have some different perspectives, what advice would you offer to law reviews, your future successors at your journals or other law review editors out there who might be listening to this, what advice would you have for them in terms of empirical legal scholarship based on this initiative? And what advice might you offer to authors who are writing papers or might be writing papers that are in that empirical vein in the future? This is Andrew.
2: I think that for law reviews, maybe for law reviews that are thinking about how to fully incorporate empirical scholarship and maybe have expressed some hesitancy about publishing empirical scholarship in the past because of maybe a concern that some of the techniques are might be too technical for them to fully analyze in time to stay up with the absolute flood of articles that come in every submission season. I hope that there being this norm of sharing as much as possible data and code used in empirical articles would actually increase the amount of empirical scholarship that journals are comfortable publishing. For authors, I think I would say that for papers in which the data and code is a part of the article, but the code is at least reasonably commented, I would say that there's nothing to fear and a lot to gain from this sort of initiative, because I think it will hopefully make a lot of journals feel more comfortable with publishing articles where they feel that there is more transparency and therefore more credibility.
1: From a generalist perspective, I think my advice would be that the tide of legal scholarship certainly seems to be turning towards empirical legal scholarship not, you know, minimize the importance of any other type of legal scholarship at all, but we certainly are getting more and more empirical legal articles. And so the importance of an initiative like this of data transparency of pursuing honest scholarly conversations that are fully informed is all the more important. And so for those who are in a similar position as I was in terms of looking over managing this whole process, I think That only then further underlines the need to set up these processes, these mechanisms, these institutions for dealing with empirical articles and transparency. And that can look different at every journal. And there are individual considerations at every journal that make it unique. For instance, like I mentioned earlier at Cornell, we do blind review. And so in any kind of alteration to our review process, that is always something that we are trying to balance is protecting our blind review process while also incorporating things like data transparency, protecting our blind review process, while also trying to incorporate things like peer review and supplementing our own knowledge of empirical robustness. But the earlier and the better you can set up these institutions, these mechanisms, set the norms to be disclosure and to be transparency, the easier it will be moving forward. And as we see where the pathway of empirical legal scholarship goes, the better generalist law reviews will be equipped to handle that transition and stay committed to our goals of publishing important, timely legal scholarship, no matter what form that takes.
3: This is John. I think these are all excellent comments. I guess I have one additional note, maybe directed more towards authors of empirical work who submitting that work, again, to these journals who are receiving thousands and thousands and thousands of articles every submission cycle. One thing that I've found really helpful when providing input on empirical pieces that have been submitted to YLJ is when an author provides some sort of a methods appendix or a part of the paper that delves into exactly how they're doing what they're doing. I think one of the most challenging things about reviewing empirical scholarship is that frequently really key assumptions or methodological choices that might not even be fully evident from the data, even if you have the data in hand, can have a huge impact on how a piece pans out. And obviously, particularly with the blind review process, there's not the opportunity at the kind of submissions review stage to reach out to an author and say, hey, what did you mean by this? Or which parameters did you use while generating this visualization or this analysis? And so I think the more detail I have spelled out in a methods appendix or something along those lines, the more confidently I can review a piece and form a judgment about the validity of the empirics in a piece. I would say even when you're handing over data, I think it's super, super helpful to provide a qualitative description of your empirical methodology, whether in a methods appendix or in footnotes or in the, the body of an article itself. That's just, I think, a huge game changer from the perspective of somebody reviewing empirical articles submitted to journals.
0: So I want to thank you all for this really informative discussion and really exciting discussion regarding a really exciting initiative. Before we close this podcast episode, I wonder if you have any closing thoughts that you would like to offer for the listeners out there.
2: This is Andrew. Yeah, I just wanted to first thank you for inviting us all to talk about this initiative. And second, I guess, one more note for Law Reviews. We're also very willing, if you'd like to get in in touch with us, to talk about ways to essentially kind of implement a data and code storage policy with minimal administrative burden which is I know something that we're all very concerned about. John has been telling me about this site called Dataverse which JREG and WildJ have now both adopted as their official storage platform that has been very helpful for us. Obviously it you know this can vary depending on the journal, but in general we're eager to help with the logistics of any law journal that wants to set up one of these policies.
0: So it sounds like this initiative is ongoing and you remain available as a resource to some of your peers out there at other law reviews. Our guests today have been Andrew Granato, the Empirical Scholarship Editor of the Yale Journal on Regulation, John Bowers, the Empirical Scholarship Editor of the Yale Law Journal, and Arisa Herman, the Senior Articles Editor of the Cornell Law Review. We've discussed a recent open letter among law reviews, the Joint Law Review Statement on Data and Code Transparency and its role in the future of empirical legal scholarship. I'll add a link to the open letter in the show notes for the episode. Andrew, John, Arisa, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for having us.
0: Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.